I think the Sunday school kids have been at least one. They're going to be meeting on the fifth floor today, one level down from us. So if your kids are still here in the sanctuary, not you guys because you're in youth now, but if your kids that are a part of Sunday school, if they're still here in the sanctuary, then by all means you can uh, take them down escort them down just one more level down on the fifth floor it will be a combined uh, Sunday school program uh, for all the kids here today all right well so good to see all of you here today we never know what to expect during this time of during this time of the year that a lot of you love to travel especially and New Year's Day uh, so I'm, I'm very happy that though we have many who are traveling there are yet uh, so it's good to see all of you. Joel, again, see uh, everyone here. So if you're visiting with us for the first time, you, anybody here for the very first time, never been here before, just simply raise your hand. God bless you. It's good to have you with us today. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We welcome all of you here today. And uh, as we are in our seats now, ready to hear from the word of God, let me ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, and we are finally coming to the end of chapter 11. If you'll notice through our Hebrews series, of course, time to go through it. We do this thoroughly. We want to know what God says, and so we we our time as we did with the Gospel of John, so we have with the book of Hebrews. And finally, I think chapter 11, I think there may have been five or six sermons just from this one chapter. Uh, but that's what it takes to get through it carefully and thoughtfully. So we are going to finish up chapter 11. Remember, it's the great chapter of faith, highlighting men and women of the Old Testament, especially who lived by faith in God. And they became champions. They became examples for us to show us how to walk by faith. In fact, chapter 11, if you remember, we sort of nickname it the Hall of Faith. And so we come to the end of it today with some more names to consider, and then no more names, but experiences that the people of faith had gone through. And we want to read about that today, and I hope that we will receive encouragement as we read this today and learn from these verses. So in Hebrews chapter 11, turn with me. We're going to begin reading today at verse 32, and we'll carry this all the way through the end of the chapter. 40. And as you find that, please stand with me, and I'll read this for all of us here today. My reading comes from the New King James Version. All right, beginning from verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the enemies. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better 
resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings, scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and in the caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Amen. You may be seated. By way of introduction, let's recall two stories from the Bible. Do you remember after Jesus rose from the dead, spent time with his disciples? He then met them once again. They were fishing on the boat. He called them to the shore and they had breakfast together. And in that moment, the Bible says that Jesus got up and he began to walk with Peter. And he told Peter that one day Peter would stretch out his hands and he would be led to a place he did not want to go. And John says that Jesus told Peter this, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. In other words, Jesus just told Peter, when you're older, in years to come, you will be crucified because you love me. And as they're walking, Peter hears those words and he turns around and he looks at John. What everybody seemed to think, you know, John was the favorite of, of Jesus, the favorite disciple. And he, Peter looks at John and he says, Lord, what about him? Or as the King James Version writes it, what shall this man do? And Jesus said to Peter, if I will that John remains until I come again, What's that to you, Peter? Peter, you follow me. And we read from Scripture, and then we read from church history, that Jesus had two different plans for John and Peter. They both preached the gospel. They both wrote glorious letters that are, that are included in the New Testament. But in the end of life, it was Peter who was crucified upside down according to church history for his faith. John was not killed for his faith. He was imprisoned, but he did not die for his faith in Christ. Nevertheless, Peter, not knowing all that was ahead of him, he did know there would be a cross for him. And yet Jesus says, Peter, follow me. John will follow me too, but Peter, you concentrate on just following me. And I believe that as the years went by, the love that Peter had for Jesus, it grew and it magnified. And all that Peter did for God, I believe that he just grew so much in the Lord. And when the time came for him to be crucified, it was by his own request. Because he didn't want to die in the same way as Jesus, so he requested they crucify him upside down on the cross because he didn't find it worthy to die exactly the same way as Jesus. 
Peter ended his life ready to give everything for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That didn't come from day one. But as years went by, the Lord prepared him for that day. There's another story. Later on, within a couple of years perhaps, a man named Saul, we call him Saul of Tarsus, a great persecutor of the church. He was a very devout Jewish man, and he believed that the Christian sect, which was called the Way, it needed to be destroyed. And so it was Saul who would arrest Christians, men or women, and he would have them put to death because there was one thing he wanted to do, and that was annihilate this way called Christianity. And one day Saul of Tarsus, on his horse, going into the city, Damascus, along the way he encounters Jesus on the road. And it was so glorious it knocked Paul, or Saul, off of his horse and the Bible says that it was blinding to him, the glory of Jesus. And he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord responded, I am Jesus. And the very next question Saul asks of the Lord is, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? He calls him Lord. Paul, who he would be later, later called Paul, Paul didn't know of all the future. He didn't know of everything that would happen to him. He wasn't aware that once he was the hunter of men, he would become the hunted. He would be the prisoner. He would be the one beaten and mocked and hunted after. He would be stoned. One day he would be beheaded by Caesar Nero through chains and imprisonment and even shipwreck. He had no idea of what was to come. All he knew at this very moment was Jesus is Lord and I must follow the Lord. Whatever you have for me, Lord, I will go. I will follow. What shall I do, Lord? And once that question was asked, we have the rest of the great, wonderful life of Paul who did probably more than any other Christian did in the history of the world. But the point I want to get to today, and maybe a good topic as we enter into a new year, I wonder how many of us, not knowing what tomorrow holds, not knowing what a few years from now may look like, nevertheless, how many of us are ready to say, as Paul, what shall I do, Lord? What do you want me to do? What's the plan you have for me? What shall I do for you, my King and my Lord? Come what may, trials or troubles, I will follow you. How many of us in this sanctuary, how many Christians today will ask the Lord that question? Well, today we're going to look at the last chapter of Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, the last few verses of the chapter 11 in Hebrews here, we're going to see more heroes of faith who lived their life with this question, what shall I do for you, Lord? And we're going to see some things that they did, things that they went through, and we're going to see their faith. What kind of faith? 
valiant faith, number one. Number two, victorious faith. And number three, we're going to see vindicated faith. Let's begin. Number one, with valiant faith. The faith that we find in the first section of our verses is a valiant faith. And with that, we hear of a few names. It says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me, as it does for me almost every Sunday that I preach as well. Time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now the writer doesn't go into any detail about them because he knows that the people who are reading this letter, they know who Gideon is and Barak and Jephthah and Samson and so forth. But maybe we're not quite sure who they are or why they're included in this great chapter of faith. Well, let's have a summary real quick about some of these names. It starts with Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah. These names come from the book of Judges. And you'll find that when you read the book of Judges, Israel had fallen deep into darkness and in sin. It was an age of apostasy when people were turning their back on God and following after false gods and idols, demonic worship. In the days of the Judges, this is how it was characterized. There's one phrase in the book of Judges that sums up what the day was like. It says that the people, they did what was right in their own eyes. Whatever I want to do, I will do it. I don't care what God says. I don't care about the consequences He has spoken. I will do what I want to do. That's how evil this generation, many generations, had become. And so in the book of Judges, God raises up judges to rule over the people. Heroes, commanders, soldiers, prophets to rule over his people. Many times when the people did what was right in their own eyes, God allowed them to suffer. He allowed enemies to invade Israel. And after years of being persecuted by them, they cried out to God for help. And when they did, God very mercifully raised up a man or a woman to save them and then to judge over them. And first of all, we come to Gideon. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Something I love about these men, even Samuel and David, is that they were very well aware of how weak they were. They knew full well of their weakness. And we're going to see why that's important in just a moment. First of all, we have Gideon. Who is Gideon? Well, Israel had fallen into sin. And so God allowed the Midianites, the people of Midian, Midians, to, to come in to take over in their land. And every time Israel had a harvest of wheat and foods and, and crops growing, the Midianites would come into their land with all their livestock and they would steal away all the food. 
and their livestock would eat all of the vegetation that was growing. And they left Israel nothing. Year after year, this was happening. The Midianites came in and did whatever they wanted with the land of Israel. The Bible says that there were so many of them, it was like an army of locusts coming into the land, devouring all the produce. And when they left, nothing but dirt was behind them. And so we have a man named Gideon. He was the son of Joash, of the clan called the Abiezrites, and they were from the tribe of Manasseh in Israel. And the story opens with Gideon threshing wheat, threshing wheat inside of a wine press because he was trying to hide it from the Midianites. He knew that if they saw it, they would take it away from him. So he was hiding and doing it in secret in order to keep the food that he was threshing. And the Lord came to Gideon and he says, Oh, Gideon, mighty man of valor. And I'm sure Gideon thought, who are you talking to? Mighty man of valor? Do you see what's happened to us? Do you see what I'm doing? Why would you call me a mighty man of valor? I am from a very weak clan. And I am the least of all my family. What is this mighty man of valor? But God called him to rise up with an army and to fight against the Midianites. The Bible says when you read, the Midianites in number were about 135,000 soldiers. Do you know how many were in the army of Gideon? You might think 100,000? 50,000? No. 10,000? No. 1,000? No. 300 soldiers. And Gideon, through the power of God, he led 300 soldiers against 135,000 Midianite soldiers. And in the story, they took these lanterns, these pitchers, put a candle inside. They broke up into three groups, 100 each, surrounding the camp of Midianites. And at the same time, they broke open their pitchers, and all of a sudden, light was showing. And they began to shout and blow the trumpets. And when that happened, the shout of 300 caused 135,000 soldiers to become afraid and confused. And with their swords, they were starting to kill each other in their confusion. Finally, some of them escaped, a small number. But Gideon went after them. And by the end, all the Midianites were destroyed. And thus, the book of Hebrews says that through men like this, they were able to turn to flight the armies of the aliens. Gideon, a nobody from an unknown family, a weak people, God called him. And through faith in what God had said, he delivered Israel. Barak, again, after time went by, the people did evil in the sight of God, and then the Canaanite king, Jabin, was ruling over Israel and persecuting them and causing great havoc. He had a great commander called Sisera, and Sisera not only had a great army, but he had 900 chariots of iron 
They're a strong, mighty army. And one day, through the prophetess Deborah, Deborah calls Barak, and she says, Barak, God is calling you to fight this army and send them away. And Barak said to Deborah, I'll go, but Deborah, I want you to go with me. Who am I to do such a thing? And perhaps the fear that overcame him, he at least wanted Deborah to join him, to be there with him. And so Barak goes and he fights. And even with the 900 chariots, the armies of Barak destroy the armies of Sisera. The Bible says that Sisera jumped off of his chariot and he went running into the city. He found the tent belonging to a woman named Jael. And he asked her, can I hide inside your tent? She said, come on in. And he goes inside and he says, give me some water. She gives him some milk. And he lays down and he says, if anybody asks if I'm here, just tell them, no, I, you haven't seen me, I'm not here. And he's lying, as he's lying down, going to sleep, Jael grabs a tent peg, a spike, and she drives it through his temple. So much so that she nails his head into the ground. Wow. Don't mess with these ladies. Deborah and Jael, my goodness. And in the end, in the Bible, in the book of Judges, it says that this army, the Canaanite army, it says that through what Barak did, he subdued the kingdom of the Canaanites. As Hebrews says, these men, through faith and women, subdued kingdoms. Samson, a boy who was born to a man named Manoah. When Samson was born, the Lord told Manoah and his wife that Samson was to be a Nazarite all his life which meant a few things. Number one, you were devoted completely to God. But to show that devotion that belongs to God, you wouldn't cut your hair. You wouldn't drink wine. You couldn't touch a dead corpse. There are a few rules they had to follow. But it was to show that I was a Nazarite and I follow God. And that was supposed to be Samson. And as Samson grew up, he grew up in a community that was mixed between Philistines and Israelites. And the Philistines were always causing trouble against the Israelites. And it was God's plan to use Samson to drive back the Philistines. That Samson would be like a thorn in the side of the Philistines. As Samson grew up, we find that even though he was a Nazarite, physically he was powerful. But morally, he was very weak. There's a story of Samson. He challenged 30 Philistine men to solve a riddle. And if they could solve the riddle, Samson was going to buy them 30 changes of clothes. But if they got it wrong, then they had to give him 30 outfits. And so they, he told them the riddle. They listened to it, and they couldn't figure it out. And so they found Samson's wife at the time, and they said, tell us the meaning of the riddle. Tell us how to solve it. And she did. And they came to him, and they told him the answer to the riddle. And it made him so mad. But a deal is a deal. I now owe you 30 outfits. So 
He took 30 Philistine men and he killed them. And he took their clothing and gave it to the other Philistine people. And just to show you how dark these times were, to retaliate against what Samson did. Eventually, they took his father-in-law and his wife and they burned them alive. And when that happened, of course, Samson retaliated. And the Bible says that a thousand Philistines came against Samson. Samson took a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And with that jawbone, out of weakness, was made strong. And he slaughtered a thousand Philistines. Later on in life, we know the story of his second wife, and that was Delilah. And Delilah was able to figure out the secret of his strength. It was in the hair. She led Philistines to come and secretly cut his hair. And then they arrested him, bound him, and took him as a prisoner. And when they took him as a prisoner, not only as a slave, but they gouged out his eyes. Samson was now weak. And also, he was spiritually bankrupt. The Bible says that the Spirit of God had left him. And there he is now, a slave among the Philistines. He was led by a little boy to come into the great temple of the god Dagon. And before all the thousands of Philistines, they used him for entertainment. The Bible doesn't say what he did, but he entertained them. And they laughed, and they mocked him, and they praised their god for capturing Samson. Samson, as weak as he was, he felt two pillars besides him. And he said, Lord, remember me. He found forgiveness with the Lord. And when he did, strength entered back into this man. And through the power of God, he pushed the pillars and all that building came tumbling down. 3,000 Philistines were killed because of that destruction. The Bible says in this book of Hebrews, out of weakness, they were made strong. Jephthah. Jephthah was a son of a prostitute. His father, married, had other sons. And as these boys all grew up, the brothers got together and they looked at brother uh, Jephthah and they said, you, worthless man, born of a prostitute, ill legitimate child, they cast him out of their family, and he ran away. And the Bible says that not only did he run away, but he ended up being surrounded by worthless men. Worthless men. And when they got together, they caused havoc in the cities. They were misfits, up to no good. And then when the people of Ammon came into this, the nation of Israel, they called upon Jephthah to come and fight for them. Jephthah gathered an army. And this man, this worthless man, son of a prostitute, this outcast, he valiantly went to battle and destroyed all the armies of the Amorites. David, the eighth son of Jesse, the youngest boy, the shepherd, the musician, the songwriter, yet God used this young man 
to slay the great giant Goliath. While every soldier in Israel was afraid, David went in the name of the Lord. He was good at playing guitar. He was good at singing. He was even better at slinging a stone. And he killed Goliath and ended up becoming the greatest king Israel had ever known. And then we have Samuel and the prophets. Samuel, even as a young boy, God called him to be a prophet. And God began to speak through this young boy. And not only Samuel, but all the prophets of God. Many of them young men. Many of them came from unknown families. Yet God spoke through these men. And they, with great power, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God courageously. Not only that, the Bible also says, without naming names, some stopped the mouths of lions, quenched violence of fire. Women received their dead raised to life again. Do you know who he's talking about here? Who stopped the mouths of lions? Daniel. Daniel, a Jewish captive in Babylon. He refused to worship the king. He refused to worship any other god. Only the Lord God of Israel. And when they found out, they took him and threw him into the lion's den. The king didn't want to do it. He wished it didn't have to be done. Nevertheless, he had to follow his law. He threw Daniel into that den of lions and covered it up. And all night long, he couldn't sleep. The king, the king fasted. And the next day, he ran to that den. He opened up the mouth of that den called down, man of God, has God saved you? And he waited, and he listened, and he heard a voice. Don't worry, I'm still here. God has closed the mouths of these lions. And when he brought Daniel out of that den, the men who thought of this idea, the king took those men and threw them into the den. And the Bible says that before the men and their wives and their children, before their bodies hit the bottom of the den, the lions had already grabbed them and broken all their bones. Hungry lions. Quench the violence of fire. Who's that? Any idea? King Nebuchadnezzar set up a great golden image. And he says, when all the music plays, all of you, when you hear the sound of the music, worship the golden image that I've set up. Three men, young boys, had a problem with that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down. Instead, they worshiped the one true God, the Lord God of Israel. And when Nebuchadnezzar found out, he was furious. And he brought them in, and he said, if you don't do what I say, I will throw you into the furnace of fire. And they said, King, no need for us to answer you. For if you do this thing, our God is able to save us even from the fire. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, King, we will never back down from our worship of the Lord God. He was so furious. He turned up the fire seven times hotter than normal. They bound them up in ropes. Men took them to the furnace and threw them in. 
The Bible says that the men who threw them in, the fire was so hot, they died of the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell into that fiery furnace. The king was startled because he could see through the window of the furnace. He saw not three men, but four men walking around inside the fire. Unbound, unburned, four men walking around the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And who was the fourth man? King Nebuchadnezzar says, it's the Son of God in that furnace with them. Wow. Women received their dead raised to life again. In the Old Testament, we read of at least two resurrections, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah raised the son of a widow, and Elisha raised the son of a woman who took care of him on his journeys. Both of those boys were raised from the dead and given back to their mothers. This is what we call valiant faith. Valiant in the battle. They did heroic things for the name of the Lord. They did impossible things. God gave them great victory in impossible circumstances. And what I love most about all of these men was they knew they were weak. They all admitted they were too young. They were nobodies. They were weak. They were afraid. And what I have learned in life is that the people God will use are the people who are well aware that they are weak in themselves. Because when God calls us to do something heroic, He wants to make sure you know it's not by your strength these things will happen, but by the strength and the arm of the Lord working in you. Paul said, Paul would one day write about the power of God. And Paul would say, when I am weak, then I am strong. What did he mean by that? Paul meant, I know that I'm just a man. I know that I'm weak. I know that I have weaknesses in my life and I have failings in my life. But the more I recognize my weakness, the more I know it is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ working in me, not my own strength, but in His strength working in my life. These men and women knew they were weak, but God made them strong. And because of that, these men and women had valiant faith. We also read of victorious faith. Victorious faith. Our reading sort of takes a turn right now in verse 35. Something happens in this one verse. In the one verse, verse 35, it goes from saying the women received the, their dead raised back and they received them once again. And then it says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. This sounds like a different group of people, ones we just read about from the book of Judges. 
in First and Second Samuel. When you look at this verse here, we find that when a person teaches that the Christian life is only filled with blessings and prosperity and possessions and great wealth, the person who teaches that has never read this scripture before. In fact, they haven't read many scriptures before. Certainly, we read of people like we just did who are victorious over their circumstances. But these people, they were victorious in their circumstances. Some, God gave victory over the troubles and the trials. Still others gained victory in the trouble, in the trial, in the suffering. And so in verse 31, we have the valiant and the victorious. Some of them won those battles. Others were killed for their faith. And yet verse 35 links them together as heroes of the faith. Just because we have faith doesn't mean trouble won't come. In the book of Revelation, there were two churches that the Lord Jesus was speaking to, Smyrna and Laodicea, two of seven churches he spoke to. Smyrna, they were persecuted, they were losing their jobs, losing their livelihood, and they were being killed for their faith. And because they had no jobs and no more homes, they were in poverty, they were poor, they were beaten. And Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich because of me. And he says to them, stay faithful to the end because there's a crown of life waiting for you. Yet to the church in Laodicea, the church in Laodicea wasn't going through persecution. They were going through prosperity and blessing and great riches. And because of that, they felt they needed nothing from God. And Jesus said to them, you have no idea how poor, naked, wretched, miserable, and blind you are. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus gave all praise and no rebuke. But to the church in Laodicea, he gave all rebuke and no praise whatsoever. Those people who were suffering in Smyrna, they were suffering for the glory of God. He said to them, it's going to get worse. More trial is coming. More trouble from the Jews and more trouble from Satan himself. And many of you are about to be thrown into prison. It's going to get worse for you. But be faithful to the end because a crown a crown is waiting for you. It says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. You know that word tortured. You can probably imagine what that might mean in your mind. But in the Greek language, it means something very specific. It means to be stretched out. Sort of like on drums over here. There's a piece of plastic, or in the old days, they stretched animal skin 
over the drum and they began to beat the drum to make the sounds. The word for torture literally means to be stretched out over a wheel and to be beaten to death. Which is exactly what the Romans did to Christians. They would stretch them out over a wheel and then take clubs and beat them, break their bones until death. Sometimes the beatings began at the feet and they worked their way up. Why? To make it last as long as possible for the victim. And this word torture comes from the Greek word that describes that exact kind of torture and beating. Others, Paul says, they were tortured, not accepting deliverance. They could have been delivered. They could have been freed. They could have gotten out of that mess. How? It was very simple. All they had to do was take a pinch of salt and sprinkle it over the fire and declare Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to do and you will be delivered. However, they did not accept deliverance. They refused to say Caesar was Lord. Why? Because they already knew there was one true Lord that they were living for. Only one. These people, they died for their faith. They didn't accept deliverance because they were waiting for a better resurrection. Though the body may be killed, for those who have faith in Christ, life goes on for eternity. And the Bible says that one day the dead will rise again. And that was the resurrection they knew was coming. And so they died horribly. They died with joy. They died with gladness. Now, I don't think somebody just wakes up one day and says, I'm ready to die for the Lord, and then, then it happens. I honestly believe that those who die for their faith, martyrdom, for those who are martyred, I do believe, just as Peter, that the Lord prepares his wounds. The Lord prepares those who will actually die and be killed for their faith. I believe that. When you look at history of the church and you look at how people died for the sake of the gospel, and you think, wow, how did they say the things they said just before being burned, just before being stabbed, just before being strangled? How did they do that? How did they stand in such confidence at that last moment? I believe it's because the Lord prepared them. The Bible says that they were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. They were stoned, just as we read like Stephen in the book of Acts. They were sawn in two. There's no story about this in the Bible, but according to Jewish tradition, the prophet Isaiah he died because the evil king Manasseh, who may have been the most evil king Israel ever had. The story goes that Manasseh, who hated Isaiah, they hollowed out a tree and they put the body of Isaiah in the hollow of the tree and then sawed him in half. It says that they were tempted, as we all are, especially these Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to go back to Judaism. And they were slain with the sword. 
Like we read about James, the brother of John in the book of Acts. King Herod killed him with a sword. They were destitute, afflicted, tormented. Destitute, meaning they were the scum of the earth. People looked at them as worse than animals. Not only destitute, but afflicted. They were punished, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, and they were tormented, which tells you of the wickedness and the evil behind the persecution. And while the world would look at such people of faith and say, you're no good, we don't want you here, you don't deserve to live, God looks at them and he says the world is not worthy of them. The world is not worthy of such men and women who live by faith. The world does not value such people, but God does. And it says that they were wandering in deserts, mountains, dens, and caves. No homes. Nowhere to go. All they had was Jesus. And yet Jesus would look upon these kinds of people and say, you are rich. At the end of Paul's life, Paul was finally a prisoner in Rome, in chains. And pretty soon, the madman, the crazy Caesar, Nero, who did awful things in his life, awful things that even the Romans looked at and said, that's, that's pretty bad. Nero hated Paul. And according to church history, it was under Nero that Paul was eventually executed. Through church history, Paul was beheaded. He was a Roman citizen, so they could not crucify him. They gave him a merciful death, which was beheading. Putting his head on the chopping block and then cutting it off with an axe. As Paul is getting toward the end of his life, he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, and here's what Paul says to Timothy. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul endured it all, knowing that a crown would be given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this, crowns are not for losers. Crowns are not for people who give up. Crowns are not for quitters. Crowns are for victors, for those who endure, for those who actually finish the race. And Paul left this world victorious in faith, victorious in battle. The world may have looked at him and said, you're nothing to us. But when Paul died, he died in victory in faith in Jesus Christ. I can imagine Paul going to the chopping block, probably witnessing to the man who was leading him there. And as the man is talked to Paul, and I'm sure Paul was speaking to him. You know there's a man, a Christian man named Sir Walter Riley who was executed by King James about 400 years ago. Sir Walter Riley 
falsely accused of treason, a Christian man. He was being led to the chopping block because he was about to have his head cut off. And as the man, the executioner, was leading him, he tried to comfort Sir Walter Riley by telling him how best to lay his head on the block. Sir Walter Riley thanked him and then said, Sir, as long as the heart is right, it doesn't matter how I lay my head. I can imagine Paul going to the chopping block and saying to this man that's about to execute him, saying something like, in the twinkling of an eye, I will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Paul laid down his head on the block and he closed his eyes. And when he opened them again, he saw Jesus face to face. Praise the Lord. Last, there is vindicated faith, and we'll finish with this. Vindicated faith. And all these, those who won the great victories, who have victory over the trial, and those who died in their faith, who had victory in the trial, all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Notice it says that they all had a good testimony of faith. In other words, when they went to heaven, they, were the, they heard the words that we long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. But it says that they did not receive the promise. What does that mean? Because Hebrews tells us of all kinds of promises that God accomplished in His people. But notice this says the promise. The promise. What was the main promise they did not receive? Remember that from the beginning of time in all of human history all mankind was leading to the cross of Jesus Christ. And everything God did, and everything God said, and everything God promised was to lead mankind to the day that Jesus would come into the world and to give his life as the Savior of the world. And all of these people of the Old Testament, they did not live to see the day of Jesus coming into the world. But now we have something better. We have something better. Because now we look back. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. And praise the name of Jesus, we have forgiveness and eternal life in his name. We have something better. The people of the Old Testament, they knew the prophecies concerning the one to come. God gave them pictures through the slain lambs, through the water out of the rock, through the waters made sweet, through the snake the serpent by whom people were healed when they looked at it. They had the promises of God, the pictures of Christ, the prophecies of Jesus, but we have something better. We know the person, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they had Abraham and Moses 
Aaron and Joshua. They had the law, the tabernacle, the priesthood. They had the altar, the sacrifices, and the feasts. But we have Jesus. We have something better. And the Bible makes a promise right here that they in the Old Testament will not be made perfect apart from us. In other words, what God started in these great men and women of the Old Testament, what He started in them, He finishes with us. What He started with them, He finishes with the church of Jesus Christ. And one day, a trumpet shall sound. And when the trumpet sounds, the Bible says that the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then all of us who are left will be caught up and will be gathered together in the clouds. And we shall forever be with the Lord. On that day, the Lord Jesus will take all the Old Testament and all the New Testament saints and bring them together as one. Perfect. Complete. And to enter into eternal life. What God started in them, He finishes with us. The church of Christ. And so as I invite the musicians back, Pastor Sefera and musicians that are still with us, going back to the great question Paul had, Paul said to Jesus, what shall I do, Lord? And I encourage all of you, especially with a new year coming, how many of you would say, what about me? What shall I do? What is it that you're calling me to do? What's the story, God, that you are writing from my life? What is it you want to accomplish in me? Great, valiant faith in the battlefield or great victory in my suffering? Because if there's one thing that Hebrews is now teaching us as we go from chapter 11 to chapter 12, it teaches us now. It's your turn. We've heard of Abraham, Noah, Enoch, Moses, Rahab, Deborah, Samson. But now it's your turn. It's your turn to take this baton in your hand and now run the race that the Lord has for you. You might look around and say, well, what about him? Or what about her? Jesus said, that's not up to you. You follow me. And so now may ask, Lord, what shall I do? What is it that you have for me? Pray that God will give us a courage to face this new year, walking with him, whatever may come our way. Is that you? Are you ready to run? Ready to run this race for the Lord Jesus? Let's stand together.